Hey everyone, James Azar here with Goodbye Privacy. Welcome to season number two. Sorry we've taken a bit of a hiatus from last year to this year, but we wanted to search for good privacy content beyond what we did in season number one. And thank you so much for your support in getting us on the new and noteworthy portion of iTunes for the entire year of season number one. We're very excited about season number two because we are going to be talking about elections. That's right. Elections, elections, elections. It's all about your vote. And what we discussed in season number one directly impacts your vote, your mindset, your beliefs, your morals, and everything else around it that's going to heading into this year's so important, so crucial election. But beyond that, we're going to explore elections all over the globe. We've got a great episode for you today. The first punch in the fight for our privacy and for our vote has already been thrown. We're almost there. It's getting ready to happen. And so this season, a few things that we're going to be doing. One, we're going to be airing these episodes every single Friday. We're not pre-recording this stuff. We're recording it every single week. So you're able to interact with us through our CyberHub Engage Twitter page, Instagram, through our website. You can submit comments. You can call in, be on the show. If you've got ideas, papers, concepts, anything around the stuff we talk about, chime in. This podcast is about us as a community. I will be talking about that a lot this season. And so I'm really urging you to interact with us here at CyberHub Engage. You can interact directly with me, James underscore Azor1 on Twitter, where you can kind of DM me, talk specifics, whatnot. We do have a Telegram channel at CyberHub Engage where you can also engage with us with us there as well and we've got more stuff going on and now before we kind of move on to season number two and and we get started on today's episode i just want to say that we're in the midst of a cyber war a new propaganda war that's creating discord and discourse between people and while In this show, I tend to show my opinions more. I don't shy away from those who disagree with me. I am not looking for yes men. I'm not trying to be in an echo chamber. If you disagree and you're willing to have a civilized, fact-based discord and discussion, I urge you to touch base with me. Urge you to do so. Because that's the point of this podcast. So... Let's get an episode number one of season number two of Goodbye Privacy, and here we go, folks. So we hear a lot about what happened in the 2016 presidential election, but beyond politics, beyond Trump beat Clinton, beyond all the noise of the last three years, impeachment, Russian collusion, there's more to it. The underbelly of it all was a report that was covered one way by mainstream media, but really those who read it, those who had the patience to sit down and read 
the Mueller report, we're able to understand exactly how our data was manipulated, used by enemies of democracy to influence people, to create division and discourse. Americans aren't far apart. A few weeks ago, just a few short weeks ago, I was on a panel called The Nation of Disinformation here in Atlanta. And the person who was interviewing me on this specific panel as I was on this specific keynote address was a very, very talented, bright senior producer for CNN International. I got hate mail. I had people sending me like, how dare you? Like, I've betrayed the American Constitution. I was Edward Snowden to some. God forbid I ever become that asshole. And... And to me, that was the epitome, and that was really the direction for this season. Why can't I be and have a discussion with someone from CNN? Is everyone at CNN like Don Lemon? He should be taken off air. Is everyone like um, Como? No. There are good people at CNN that try to get the right news out to people, not defending CNN, but... The whole point of democracy and the whole point of political uh, discourse and discussion is to be able to express two points of view factually in order to get an opinion. And social media has really kind of changed that. And we're going to talk a little bit about that here in just a second. So the first bunches into our privacy were delivered very early, even before the dawn of Internet, right? So when we think of the 2016 presidential election... And we think of the Mueller report and what came out of that. And we're going to go into that here, folks, in just a few moments. We go, was this the first time a foreign nation attacked our democracy and tried to influence our elections? And the answer to that is no, it's not the first time. It's the first time they were able to mass scale effectively get Americans to doubt our democratic elections in public and be able to fake the news media into playing along to that narrative because it's clickbait, it's ratings, it's more advertising dollars. So they're taking advantage of our capitalistic democratic society to push a political agenda that hinders people, brothers, families from being able to share a holiday meal, a Sunday dinner, or even a Shabbat dinner within their households. And that is the identical plan because our adversaries, democracy's adversaries, don't have a four-year term to accomplish their mission. They have decades upon decades to sow this discord, to fester it, to get it to the point where our democracy, where this longest standing democracy on the planet fails. And so election interference before social media was still there. It was discreet. We weren't really able to recognize it because it came in the form of uh, mail, snail mail. Yeah, that white truck where the driver sits like he's from Australia. (laughs) Yeah, that aspect of it. And there were flyers. They weren't, and most of the time, they weren't even delivered. And part of the time, they had no real call to action outside of trying to get you to look something up. And what was the difference then than now? If I got a flyer, spoke to um, someone here in rural Georgia recently who um, gave me a very interesting story. So 
We were talking about the elections in the 60s and 70s at the height of the Cold War when communism was on the rise. The threat of communism to our nation was at its highest. The threat of communism to essentially democracy was at its highest. The world was still wheeling and dealing from World War II. Uh, Europe was just starting to recover from the rubbles of the war in the 30s and 40s. And and, And the question was really simple. How did you guys discern the information? And the entire answer was always community. And we're going to talk a lot about that this season. A lot about it. Where was that community? If someone got a flyer that called someone something, that person discussed that with their neighbors, with people who they went to church with, with people they went to bridge, to VFWs, those were how that's how information was discerned that's how people were able to identify real news from fake news and also the papers weren't filled with opinions they rather reported on facts and you had an opinion section and i think people confuse don lemon and como and tucker carlson and all these guys as reporters they're not reporters they're opinionists They give you their opinion on news and they distort the facts to support their opinion. And so no one can look at these guys and realistically call them reporters because they're not that. A reporter reports the news, the facts, with no hidden agenda. CNN, Fox, MSNBC, ABC, the mainstream media today is an opinionated, opinionist media. They're not reporting the news. Today, as people, we have to discern between all of these different mainstream media channels to make up our own. So in season number one, we really discussed thoroughly how social media, how our data is being handled, how people are selling our data for pennies, making billions and billions of dollars. And if you haven't listened to our first season and you're just starting in season number two, I urge you, in between episodes, go listen to season number one. You don't want to miss that. You really don't. It's the basis of everything we're going to be talking about this season. So make sure you do that. And make sure you subscribe to get alerts to our uh, podcast as we publish them every single Friday. But how how did social media impact our privacy and even train us? in our way of thinking. And we're going to expand into that a little bit more. So social media, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, you name it. Free apps that let you you interact with your friends for free. And some people said nothing's free. They're absolutely right. Because back then, speaking to (laughs) some of the uh, elderly I've spoken with in preparation for this season... Getting together at the VFW wasn't free, or getting together at the city or county diner isn't free. You get a cup of joe, and you drink it, and you talk. And so, what does all of that mean? And we go into that a little bit more here. So, social media gives us free access to information, but it sells that information for anyone willing to pay even the slightest dollar without even verifying who the party they're selling the data to is or what usage of the data they're going to be taking and using it for. 
they don't care. They just want to sell this data. They sell it to brokers who turn around and sell it thousands and thousands of times over. We did an entire episode on data brokers that you should go listen to. Really one of our most popular episodes here on Goodbye Privacy. It's eye-opening. But to get into that, let's get into 2016. And let's get into the Mueller report. And I'm going to cite the Mueller report a lot in today's episode. And some people are going to say why. It was done by political hacks who had a specific agenda against the president. I'm not going into their findings in terms of whether the president or his people did any misconduct. To the contrary, I am going to show you how social media was weaponized by Russia, how our privacy was sold for free, and how this started the massive discord that's been going on in our nation for the last three and a half years and continues to rip our nation apart. And I, as one, am an American first. That's why the flags sit to my right. And I am a party member second. And so the Internet Research Agency, IRA, according to the Mueller report, carried out the earliest Russian interference operation identified by the Mueller investigation. They did a social media campaign designed to provoke and amplify political and social discord in the United States. The IRA itself was based in St. Petersburg, Russia, and received funding from a Russian oligarch by the name of Yevgeny Prigozhin. Prigozhin. I've been practicing his last name, but fuck it, he's Russian. And companies he controlled. Prigozhin is widely reported to have ties to Russian President Vladimir Putin. For those who don't know, if you're an oligarch in Russia, you only have money because Putin said you can have money. Because anyone else who had money who didn't go along Putin's agenda didn't have money anymore, ended up getting thrown in a jail somewhere in Siberia and getting the key thrown in the sand waiting for Siberia to defrost and thaw out. And that's never going to happen. But the assaults didn't start in 2015. This started even before President Trump announced his intentions to run for the Republican primary in the elections. In mid-2014, in preparation for the presidential election, right around midterms, the IRA sent employees to the U.S. on an intelligence-gathering mission with specific instructions of the kind of information they needed to gather. The IRA later used social media accounts and interest groups to sow discord in the U.S. political system through what it termed information warfare, or what we used to term as propaganda. The campaign evolved from a generalized program designed in 2014 and 2015 to undermine the U.S. electoral system to a targeted operation that by early 2016 favored one candidate and disparaged another. The IRA's operation also included the purchase of political advertisements on social media in the names of U.S. persons and entities, as well as, sta- as, as well as the staging of political rallies inside the U.S. through social media platforms. To organize those rallies, the IRA employees posed as U.S. grassroots entities and persons and made contact with various supporters and campaign officials of the candidates in the United States. Folks, I'm reading this and I'm replacing the Mueller reports idea of who they defined this to because 
one of the aspects of the Mueller report is the fact that this wasn't only happening to assist one candidate, but also another. And this is also evident in the impeachment where Ukraine was actually helping the other party in the election, the Democrats, in getting dirt on President Trump at the time. So for those who've read the Mueller report who go, why don't you say the candidate's name? Because this isn't about what candidate they did this for. This is more about how they weaponize social media. If you want to have that political discourse, we can have it outside this episode online or in person, which I prefer much better. The investigation did not identify evidence that any U.S. persons conspired or coordinated with the IRA. Section 2 of the Mueller report details the office's investigation of the Russian social media campaign. The IRA and its employees began operating and targeting the U.S. as early as 2014 using fictitious U.S. personas. IRA employees operated social media accounts and group pages designed to attract the U.S. audience. These groups and accounts which address divisive U.S. political and social issues falsely claimed to be controlled by U.S. activists. Over time, these social media accounts became a means to reach a larger U.S. audience. IRA employees traveled to the U.S. in mid-2014, again, as was said, on an intelligence-gathering mission to obtain information and photographs of places um, in their social media posts. IRA employees posted derogatory information about a number of candidates in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. By early to mid-2016, IRA operations included supporting the uh, different candidates and disparaging the other one. The IRA made various expenditures to carry out those activities, including spending money and buying political advertisements on social media and posing as U.S. interests uh, without revealing their Russian association, uh, communicated electronically with individuals associated with various campaigns and with various political activists to coordinate specific activities. By the end of the 2016 U.S. um, election, the IRA had the ability to reach millions of U.S. persons through social media accounts. Multiple IRA-controlled Facebook groups and Instagram accounts had hundreds of thousands of U.S. participants. IRA-controlled Twitter accounts separately had tens of thousands of followers, including multiple U.S. political figures who retweeted the IRA-created content. In November of 2017, a Facebook representative testified that Facebook identified over 470 IRA-controlled Facebook accounts that collectively made over 80 made 80,000 posts between January of 2015 and August of 2017. Facebook estimates that they've reached approximately uh, 10 million people and identified, um, and Twitter has identified. 3,814 IRA-controlled Twitter accounts, and that affected 1.4 million people. And sorry, on the Facebook estimate, I stand corrected. It was 126 million persons. That is the entire uh, pretty much voting electorate in our 2016 presidential election. Around 128 million people voted in our last election. So 126 million were exposed to content created by the Russians on social media. In order to expand its interference in 2016 U.S. presidential election, the GRU units transferred many of the documents. So we're going to get into WikiLeaks' role in this whole thing here in just a second. But before we do that, it's important to understand that right now one of the aspects and one of the debates around this is what's the role that social media should play in elections? Should they do political ads? Should they not do political ads? Should they just allow anyone to post? Should they not allow anyone to post? And it's it's a it's a fairly complicated debate 
Now, I'll explain. Me personally, I think that we should have political ads on social media. I think these political ads should come from US-based candidates, meaning if it's not coming from the candidate's campaign, it shouldn't be posted. If a super PAC is supporting an issue over another, then that super PAC should be registered. And obviously, super PACs um, have a discretion piece in it where they don't have to say who's giving money to that super PAC. I think that law based on social media now needs to be overturned um, and changed so that we can actually get political ads. I'd rather have political ads than random accounts like what IRA did in leading up to the 2016 election, posting information. The reason I say that is because very simply, I'm unable and not a lot of people are able to discern a real persona on social media to a fake one. And the only way to get real information to be able to discern as a voting block electorate is through ads. Because people who have voted before understand the difference in a political ad endorsed by a candidate and its contents to one posted by what seemingly could look like a news website or a social media influencer. And all of those have an impact into that. But the Russian campaign went just beyond social media. It wasn't just paying for ads and having Twitter um, handles with tens of thousands of followers or Facebook accounts and groups with tens of thousands of followers or hundreds of thousands of followers in some cases. They also used WikiLeaks and our freedom of press and then they used hackers. They're they're state-sponsored, state-paid, state-motivated hacking groups to go in and obtain data and then leak it out in the essence of making it seem like it's the freedom of the press and the press is investigating and this is outrageous to really being foreign interference. And they went to WikiLeaks for that. And this was before Julian Assange. Um, this was way after Julian Assange was already wanted and he was already hiding in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. So this wasn't big quid pro quo in that aspect WikiLeaks and particularly its founder Julian Assange according to the Mueller report privately expressed opposition to one of the candidates well before the first release of the stolen documents and had an interest in trying to damage that candidate's uh, campaign Assange wrote to other members and associates of WikiLeaks that we believe it would be much better for someone else to win but this specific candidate and then form a block to rein in their worst qualities um, and so forth. In March of 2016, WikiLeaks released a searchable archives of approximately 30,000 emails from, at the time, candidate Hillary Clinton. The um, office was able to identify that the GRU, in fact, hacked the DNC through the DNC chair uh, sub chairperson John Podesta, who fell for a phishing email, and then granted um, downloaded a malware that was able to go through the entire DNC database and obtain all their emails 
And then those emails were later on given to WikiLeaks to publish in an effort to influence people's decision-making in the election. The Mueller report itself goes on to say that there are more aspects to that than just the WikiLeaks interference. WikiLeaks interference was just a, um, a piece of it. And as they grabbed the documents from the DNC and started spreading them out through WikiLeaks, they were already launching essentially material that was already in the documents before they got published on their social media accounts, letting people know something's about to come. And that's how people knew stuff was about to come. They weren't really smart. It was just one of their social media characters doing that. Just a moment. There's a lot in the Mueller report about the Russians wanting to get into the uh, President Trump's campaign. However, one thing is crystal clear. While meetings did occur, and there's no denying those, there was nothing within their activity that even remotely shows that the Trump campaign coordinated or did anything to support that, uh, to support their efforts in what was going on here. Contrary to some of the stuff you see out there, the Mueller report is crystal clear on it. And mind you, the Mueller report has a lot of really dark shaded areas uh, simply because it's still, um, there's still numerous of investigations going on and so forth. In one of the accounts that they had, um, they've created um, different Facebook accounts that are the name of Alex Anderson and Andrea Hansen, Gary Williams, Lakeisha Richardson, and they've created unofficial Twitter accounts of various um, parties like the Tennessee Republicans on Twitter um, and, and, and other cases. Internal IRA documents refer to support of one campaign over the other. For example, using any opportunity to criticize various people um, within the different parties and different ideas and so forth. It was very clear that they were really trying to influence the electorate in one way, but they were also employing tactics complete to the other way that have been shown through various research that's been done. Some of it cited in the Mueller report, parts of it not cited in the Mueller report. Again, part of the Mueller report is it was biased. However, there were... um, one of the major things that the IRA and the Russians did was understanding the diversity and the history of our nation. They took advantage of specific social justice groups, funded some of them, but also created different rallies for these people who were on one side of the uh, voting electorate in order to turn off a different side of the voting electorate. And so, electorate, I'm sorry. And and they did this with Black Lives Matter. Specifically speaking, they created um, flash mobs uh, for Black Lives Matter. They funded some of their activity. They hindered with fake data and false data into this stuff. And... Another part of it was 
they went on the Don't Shoot Us campaign in United Muslims of America, targeting two specific minority groups within America and then creating another Facebook group called Being Patriotic and Secured Border and having them, these four groups were controlled by the Russians, yet these four groups were fighting each other to create discourse within the American population and further drive the divide apart. So rather than having constructive conversations of how we can improve our nation, we were the, the Russians were essentially taking these factions on the far right and far left and really putting them in groups, getting their voices heard, and then attacking one another through social media to make this stuff happen. This is really the the ultimate TPP of, and and, and that's the ultimate op, um, that's the ultimate method of operations for him. Um, the IRA's Twitter's operation involved two specific strategies. One was they operated certain Twitter accounts to create individual U.S. personas, and separately they operated a network of automated Twitter Twitter accounts, uh, commonly known as bot networks that enabled them to amplify existing content on Twitter. The IRA operated all of these different accounts similar to its operation on Twitter as it did on Facebook. And they allowed for the communication through uh, uh, public tweeting or Twitter's private messenger DM with specific users. Um, They had a bunch of different personas and names here. Some of them were... Uh, Trump supporters, others were Clinton supporters, where they were having Clinton supporters to allegedly um, tweet specific content, as well as having Trump supporters tweet different content, again, further inflaming uh, political opinions and further driving people apart. The Mueller report really does go on to, to talk about rallies that were organized Over a dozen rallies were organized by the IRA during uh, the 2015 and 2016 election, including a Confederate rally in November of 2015. And then they even organized some rallies after the presidential election in 2016. Um, The attendance um, in some of these rallies appear to have drawn very few uh, participants, while others drew hundreds and the reach of these rallies were, were really closely monitored. And so this takes us into what does it all mean for us and our privacy? And I can keep going on the Mueller report. I don't want to bore you with the details. I really just wanted to kind of highlight some parts of the Mueller report that really talk about the uh, modus operandi of the Russians during our 2016 elections. And, and furthermore, I wanted to really highlight the aspect that social media is a great and invaluable tool for our way of life today. It's not something anyone can easily get rid of. If you're not on LinkedIn, you probably won't find a job. You won't be able to do your job. If you're not on Facebook, you probably won't know what's happening with your family because no one sends postcards in the mail anymore. Unless it's Micah for Christmas, he sends me a postcard every single year. Um, and that's the only post Christmas card I get ever is from Micah. Um, and they're all on my fridge. I've got a collection of them. So that's about it. But here's where we failed as Americans. Here's where we've allowed this and we've played into this perfectly. And everyone has. 
every single mainstream media outlet played into this. Congressmen and senators, even the president himself, have played into this narrative, have further divided our nation than ever before. Because they've all played a role in this. Every single one of them. Mainstream media with their coverage of this stuff essentially building this case against the president and his team without real concrete proof. And when there's concrete proof on the other end, they absolutely ignore it. So they're biased, right? And again, I said they're opinion news networks. They're not reporting the news. They're giving you their opinion of the news. They're distorting facts to give you what they think, what plays into their narrative, into their idea, into this whole new aspect of what they like to call news but it's not that folks it's really not that there's so much more to this than what we're seeing now and as we head into these next election cycle i fear that these campaigns are going to be worse than the ones that were in 2016 one yeah social twitter said no ads facebook said we'll take ads Twitter said we're fighting bots. Facebook said they're going to fight bots. The whole, All the problem with that is these algorithms. We did an experiment here at Goodbye Privacy where I opened all these different Facebook accounts. And I started engaging with one specific aspect of content on a political spectrum and in a social issue. And all my feed, all my suggestions, all the ads became accustomed to that one opinion. I never saw the other point of that argument. I was never given a chance to do so. As I started browsing, if I was pro-life, all I saw was pro-life stuff. And everything that I saw around the pro-life stuff was talking about that. If I was pro-choice, all I saw was pro-choice stuff and how pro-life people disparaging one another. I'd say that one side did it more than the other. That's irrelevant. The fact is these algorithms that are meant and sold to us as we want to make sure your online experience is beautiful, it's amazing, it's everything you want it to be. They're hindering our ability to make educated decisions. Because we can't trust any form of information. And furthermore, we've lost our sense of community. We sit in these echo chambers listening to people who sound just like us. This is especially relevant among college-aged kids in college campuses. They're in their echo chambers They're blinded by their beliefs. They're not looking anywhere else. They're just listening to people who support their point of view. And while you're entitled to have your own opinion and your own point of view, you owe it to yourself to be educated, to understand both sides of the argument, to be able to form an educated opinion that you can back by facts and not by rumors. And facts are found in reasonable, in places where they're non-biased, in books, in 
specific articles that are written not in the I or me format, but in the it format. I read editorials today that are supposed to be reporting the news, and in the midst of it, I see, well, I saw, what did, I don't care what you saw. Report to me what happened. We saw this a short week ago in Virginia at the uh, um, demonstration by over 20 some odd thousand people who are pro-gun, who are fighting the legislation um, in Virginia. We've seen this happen with other um, with the Women's March. We And we've seen this happen in all kinds. I, don't report to me what you think you saw or what one person did. Don't look for the exception. We've promoted this conduct as people, this clickbait, our ability to only want to interact with content that's somewhat outrageous, our sensibility to violence, to wanting to see just really evil, bad stuff is absolutely unbelievable. Where does that go? How do we start addressing all of these various challenges that are coming upon us? And I feel I have a 14-year-old daughter. My daily challenge is trying to filter the content that she gets, allowing her and challenging her train of thought so that she can explore and research other opinions and matters around different topics from social issues to political issues to lifestyle issues. The challenge we have with all this is we go into a corner, we pick a corner, we plant a flag, and we don't move. The failure to compromise only leads to war. The failure to respect another's opinion leads to tyranny. This country is neither tyrant nor racist. We have our issues. But this nation is far from any of that. The media will never cover that. The media will never cover the people who walk together to school, irregardless of their race. The people who accomplish tasks together. We celebrate exceptions rather than highlighting the main events of our lives, the normalcy of our lives. We live in the greatest economy and in the greatest country on the planet. And yet it seems like this generation is looking for a fight where it doesn't exist. We had problems 50 years ago. We had civil rights issues. And we are based here in Atlanta, Georgia, the home base of the civil rights movement. And Dr. King stood for civil rights. If Dr. King was still alive today, he would not support any of the stuff that's going on today. None of it from either side of the political aisle. None of it would matter. Dr. King was about dialogue. Justice came through two people, black and white, sitting in a room talking about their differences and bridging those gaps so that there is an acceptance and there is progress. It's not beating the other side to submission. Because beating the other side to to submission is only going to bring the other side to fight you back later on, folks. That's what tyrants did. That's what Saddam Hussein did in Iraq. He beat the opposition to submission until he could no longer beat them no more. And they started doing that. We saw that during the Arab Spring last decade in 2011 and 2013 and 2012. 
These uprisings were against tyrants that crushed opposition, that wanted one voice heard rather than respecting the voices and the ways of others. Our nation stands to earn more by people sitting together in one room and being able to discuss and have a dialogue and not by YouTube videos of so-and-so destroys this person's opinion. But if so-and-so debate on an educated level, one can understand an issue and be able to solve it. As we explore this this season on Goodbye Privacy, we are going to get deep into these social issues. We're going to get deep into how our privacy plays right into it. We're going to start understanding that everything we post online, every keyword, the way we put together a sentence is used to change and facilitate and further indoctrinate our train of thought and our way of thinking rather than allowing us to freely and openly explore all available options so that we're able to make educated and good decisions that help us in our lives and don't set us back. Whether you're on the right or the left, whether you're in the center, whether you're a minority or a majority, one has to respect the other side and be able to have positive and indicative dialogue about it. I'm going to stop today's episode here. We're going to come back with a lot more next week. Our episode next week is going to be around community and information. If you have any information, if you want to share any stories, you're welcome to do so by going to cyberhubengage.com and submitting it there. You can go to our goodbye privacy page, correct? The contact us page on our Cyberhub Engage page. You can also contact us through social media, looking up at Cyberhub Engage, where we post our daily cybersecurity, uh, daily cyber briefing. We also do our weekly CISO talks with chief information security officers from some of the leading companies on the challenges of securing their organizations. But this podcast is all about you, the consumer. It's all about any every single person who wants to be able to live a peaceful, respective lives without all the discourse and the hate that we see going on today. So next week on Goodbye Privacy, we'll be talking about community and information and how that affects our privacy. Until then, thank you so much for listening. You can tune in. You can engage with me directly on Twitter, James underscore Azar1. That's James, like James Bond, underscore Azar Alpha Zulu, Alpha Romeo 1 on Twitter. My name is James Azar. Signing off. We'll be back with more next Friday. Until then, enjoy your weekend and enjoy the rest of your week.